At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a world full of information, literally at our fingertips. Among all the claims of truth in the world, it can be hard to separate fact from fiction. This is often the case when it comes to the Christian faith. Do we understand the truth of what we believe, and can we articulate it to others? In The Essentials, Why Truth Matters, we'll use the affirmations of the Apostles' Creed as a guide to teaching us the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Join us each week as we affirm the foundational truths of Christianity so we can stand on the bedrock of God's truth and share that good news with the world. All right, good morning, church. Good morning. Are you awake, alive, alert, and enthusiastic? <laughs> the first service did, did better than you guys. Come on. Like, I dare you to make me smile. It's great to be with you today. I'm so glad that you are here with us today. I remember when I first took our family, a bunch of little kids, to Disney World. You remember the first time? The first time we went to Disney World, everyone was excited. We got everyone in the car, and we're in the parking lot, and we get out of the car, and we're walking into the park, and everyone is excited, and there's this great big banner that you have to walk under before you get in the park, and it says, the happiest place on earth. I'm like, how do they know that? How do they know it's the happiest place on earth? Do they go all around the world and check all the different places and decided that that 40 square miles in Orlando was the happiest place on the entire earth? Well, I was impressed. So I said, all right, let's go. Let's experience this. And I led my family through the banner into the happiest place on earth. And I was quickly disillusioned. I saw, I saw kids crying. I saw siblings fighting. I saw parents yelling at their kids. I saw spouses arguing with each other over stupid stuff. And that was just our family. <laughs> I just... <laughs> Maybe you can relate. <laughs> but it got me thinking. It got me thinking. If we had a banner kind of over the entrance to our church that described us when we walked in, what would it say? What should it say? Well, to answer that question, we should take a look at what the Bible says on this subject. What does God have to say about his church? And what is his plan and desire for this group of believers right here in this room? So if you've been attending at any point in the last couple of months, you know we are in the middle of a sermon series called Essentials, Why Truth Matters. And it's a great title because the truth is sort of wobbling under some cultural baggage these days. I just read a poll that was just taken recently. And, it's, and the, poll, uh, the respondents said this, 55% of people under the age of 30 believe there is no absolute truth and everyone gets to define their own version of the truth. And even when you took all ages into consideration in that poll, that number was still pretty high at 40% believing there is no such thing as absolute truth. Well, we believe that truth does matter. In fact, Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And therefore, as a church, if we want to lay out what we emphatically believe the Bible and therefore God says about the most important things. And we've been using the Apostles' Creed the last few months or last few weeks as a guide to what those important truths are. And today's portion of the Creed is one of my favorites. And it says this, I believe in the holy universal church, the communion of saints. That's our topic for today as far as the Creed is concerned and what we're going to look into. Now, if you were to look up the creed, like on Google, and you were to Google that, it actually says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Now, the word Catholic, small c, in that context, is just derived from the Greek word that means universal. So to avoid any confusion with the Catholic Church, capital C, we've just replaced that with the word universal, because that's what it means. Now, you might be saying, well, what does universal mean? Well, the word universal, when, it talk, when we talk about the universal church, it means all the believers in Jesus worldwide, 
united in faith, worshiping in local churches all around the world. And our big idea today is actually rooted and anchored in this notion of the universal church. And our big idea is this. God's church is where God's people grow in God's image. This is where that happens. Now, the Apostle Paul, he valued a healthy church. It's one of the most important concerns of those who follow Christ. And I know sometimes it's hard to understand that because we deal with a lot of division and denominations and labels. And so sometimes it's, it's hard to understand the impact that Paul was trying to impart on us. But the interesting thing is, even in Paul's day, when he had to deal with the new church kind of getting off its feet in the local church, he had to deal with divisions and labels as well. They had arguments and fights over things like Jew versus Gentile or circumcised versus uncircumcised or rich versus poor. And so he had to deal with some of those same labels and issues as well. So we're going to jump into the book of Ephesians today, and we're going to get a glimpse of Paul's passion for the church as he regularly dealt with some of those divisions and some of those those, uh, delineations. Now, the book of Ephesians was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to several churches in Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. And uh, he wrote this book for a couple reasons. And actually, he was in prison when he wrote the book. He was in prison three times for his faith uh, during the course of his life. And uh, this was written the second time he was in prison while he was in Rome. And uh, he was in house arrest for two years, actually. And he wrote a number of books that are in our New Testament during that time. And Ephesians is one of those. Now, the purpose of this letter was to help church members understand what God's purpose was for their life and what his goals were for the churches that they attended. So let's read the first part of our text. If you have your device, your Bible, or maybe just a screen up above, you can jump to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6 here. And we're going to start reading here just in verse 1. And it says this, I, therefore, now we've got to stop there because you can't just start reading scripture in a place where it says therefore, right? Because we have to know what the therefore is there for because it's a transitionary term. And basically what Paul's saying is, I've, I've told you some things already and now because of the things I've told you, there are some actions I want you to take as a result. So we need to know what those things are. And what's happened in the first few chapters of Ephesians is Paul has given us a list of theological concepts where he's talked about some theolo- theological concepts that he wants us to pay attention to. And those concepts have to do with things like um, the blessings that we have in Christ, like redemption and forgiveness and grace. And the fact that the gift of salvation is through Jesus Christ, not because of anything that we have done, but only because of what Christ has done. And because of Christ, that gift is available to everyone. So Paul's saying, because of those things, I want you to pay attention to that, and this is how I want you to respond. So we actually could just start, uh, start the passage like this. As a result of the blessing and gift of salvation available to you through Christ, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, in these first six verses, Paul is really focusing on unity. And we we can see that in our first point here. God's church is where he unites his body. Now, the first thing Paul tells us to is to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. So if we're going to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, we have to know what the word calling means. What is he talking about when he says calling? He's not talking about your vocation. He's not talking about um, your aspirations or your goals in life. It's something much deeper. It is a summons to follow the gospel. It is a call to follow King Jesus. As in, I believe in Jesus, my Savior, and I'm going to give him my undivided allegiance. Therefore, 
A life worthy of that calling is to live according to the standards of Jesus. Now, what does that life look like? Paul says, I'm glad you asked, because we're going to look at that in verses 2 and 3. He has a list of what that looks like. What does it look like to live worthy of the calling? The first thing that we see here in verse 2 is what? Humility. And how much humility? All humility, all right? All humility, not just a little bit. We're not just sliding in there with a little bit of humility. We have to live a life that is characterized by humility, all right? And this trait was not valued in Paul's world. Back then, they looked down on humility. It was like a, a slave-like quality where you look down on yourself as unimportant. They valued people who were like um, complete and self-sufficient and manly men, rah, right? Kind of like today. Not much has changed in that regard. And, and God says, I want us to value something different. See, we are marvelous relational beings that are created in the image of God. And God says, when you try to find your importance outside of me, you become proud and arrogant and probably not that happy. But when you put others first, when you put others ahead of you, not only do you lift them up, not only do you build them up, but I will give you the self-worth that you are desperately looking for. I will be that for you. So humility, the first one, and then gentleness, right? Being tender and not harsh. And then the next one is patience. I heard a great definition of patience the other day. It's resisting the tyranny of our own agenda. I am an agenda person. I am a list-driven person. I found out when we got married that not everyone likes lists. I was, that was a shocker to me, right? And I love my agenda, and I love... But when things start to encroach on my agenda and things get out of order, I crawl up into this fetal position like, no, don't mess with my schedule. And that's when I become impatient. So we need to be patient, resisting that tyranny and those pulls on our life. And the next thing it says What? The next in the list is bearing one with an, or bearing with one another. What do you think it means bearing with one another? It kind of means what it sounds like. It means to put up with, to endure. And I know this is going to be hard for you to believe, but there's some people in this room that you will find, anno that you will find annoying. <laughs> yeah, my husband. No, okay. And even in spite of family, outside of that, there's people that you are going to find annoying. In fact, I heard someone say recently, um, to live above with the saints we love, oh, that'll be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, that's another story. <laughs> but, but it's not just putting up with, period. There's a two-word qualifier there. Putting up with each other, bearing with one another in love. We have to respond to the people that annoy us lovingly. That means you have to be gracious and kind and caring and benevolent and not talk bad about them behind their back. Not always easy, but that's, that's the expectation. And finally, the last characteristic under this banner, under, uh, under uh, walking worthy, is this. It says here in uh, uh, verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. All right? Notice it doesn't say eager to create the unity. It says eager to maintain the unity. So that unity is something that already is there. It's something already that we possess. And the fact is this. When you come to Christ, when you become a follower of Christ, the Spirit of God comes into your life and creates a bond of peace with all other believers. It's a spiritual bond that we have. We become brothers and sisters. You know how it said, um, I, can't, I wish we could pick my family, but, but we can't? Well, guess what? You can't pick your fellow believers either, right? We are created in a way that we have this bond of peace, and that is something that we have to maintain. That is something that we are supposed to be guarding. The unity is already there. And where does that start? It starts right here in this room. I remember in college, 
my best friend and roommate was a guy named Paul. And uh, Paul and I were really good for each other because Paul helped me come out of my shell. He helped me realize I could actually talk to girls and not like faint on the sidewalk. And um, I, was, I was really good for Paul because I helped him um, not get kicked out of school. <laughs> that was my relationship. He was like, hey, Jerry, let's do this. And I'm like, no, Paul, that's a terrible idea. And so we were really good for each other. So one night I came back from a studying in the library and I got to the dorm room and I, I went to open the door and the door swung open from the inside and Paul comes running out and our other roommate, Phil, right behind him. They get out of the way, get out of the way. And they ran down the hallway. And I looked in the room, it was pitch black in the room, which is really odd. And so I walked in the room, turned on the light and the door shut behind me. And I noticed two things. One, the window was open. Uh, we lived on the second floor overlooking a car- courtyard. And the second thing was that there was water all over the place. And I was trying to figure out what, what's going on. And all of a sudden, there was an angry knock at the door. And I opened up the door, and standing there was a, was a guy that I recognized as one of the wrestlers, one of the university wrestlers, and he was soaking wet from head to foot. And I realized what happened. Paul and Phil had dumped a bucket of water on him as he walked beneath the room, and then left. They didn't even say, like, come with us, right? They just left me there. And so I didn't know what to do. This guy was so angry. He was spitting mad. He could hardly put two senses together, which actually was kind of normal for him. Um, not because he was a wrestler. I would never stereotype like that. But he was, he was so angry, and he balled his fists up, and I knew I was in trouble. So I didn't know what to do. So I stepped out into the hallway because there was people out there, and I thought, you know, at least they could write home, and, you know, he died bravely. And, uh, and he got right in my face, and I, I this is not going to go well. And just then the door opened of our neighbors. And the two guys that lived in that dorm room were um, ROTC, Reserve Officer Training Corps. They were, they were Army guys, right? And we had been friends and had been talking to each other over the course of the year. And he stood there, and he assessed the situation. And he walked right in between that wrestler and me, went nose to nose with that wrestler and said, if you've got a problem with him, you've got a problem with me. I was like, yeah, come on now, big guy. What are you going to do now, man? Come on. Come on, tough guy. And it just struck me. Because we were neighbors, because we were on the same floor, because we had this common bond underneath us, he was going to put himself on the line. He had my back. And I got to thinking, you know, Satan's always out there trying to pound us. And when we go out in the world, the world is not a friend to us these days. Where else are we going to go where we have each other's back? Where are we going to link arms and find a safe place where we can let our guard down and not be pummeled? It's right here. It's in this place right here. But it's true, we don't always walk in the spirit all the time. Divisions happen, stuff like that happens. And Paul knows this, so he is imploring us to have an urgency around maintaining the unity of God's church. And it's so important that he zeroes in on this in the next few verses, reminding us of seven areas where we are one. And what is it, starting starting in verse, uh, let's see, verse three, verse four. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. This is an emphatic call to unity right here. If someone says to you, there's so many divisions, there's so many denominations, you, you can say, yes, but there's just one of these. These are the things that bring us together. These are the core of what we believe. These are the things that we have in common. In fact, a lot of scholars believe that verses 4 through 6 here were actually an early creed that Paul or maybe one of his colleagues had written for new believers to memorize so they could grasp and understand what the most important things were. This list right here. In the book of 1 Corinthians, 
Paul's having a similar conversation with the church there, the church in Corinth. But he's being a little more pointed. He's kind of taking them out to the woodshed. He's a bit frustrated with them. And the reason he's frustrated with that church is because they have started to align themselves with pastors and leaders that they uh, like best, that are their favorites. So they would say, like, "Um, I like this pastor. And others would say, well, I'm following that guy. And others would say, well, I'm following this guy over here. And Paul said, this is not so. Did those guys die for you? Were you baptized in their name? Of course not. Christ is not divided. We shouldn't divide either. And there's power in this message of one, this oneness. It begs the question, how do we approach the church? Do we value this unity the way God does and the way Paul is outlining for us right here? Do we make every effort to guard that? Do you know that Scripture often talks about the church being the bride of Christ? So in fact, if you were to turn over one page or maybe one swipe on your device to Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 25, it says this, Husbands, love your wives. You know, woohoo, that's a good thing. Okay, but the second part is the most important. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Given that picture, how much do you think God values oneness? You would, never say, you would never say to someone, hey, I'd love to have you come over for dinner, but if you could leave your wife at home, that would be great. <laughs> she kind of rubs me the wrong way. You would never say that, right? But sometimes we have similar conversations and discussions about Christ's bride, his church. So maybe a perspective change is needed. Do we value what God values? And maybe that perspective shift includes taking a step forward in unity. Maybe for you it's going to the next steps class, maybe becoming a member, maybe joining a life group, somehow experiencing that unity of the Spirit that we should be experiencing as brothers and sisters. Now, you might be like, oh, Jerry, I feel like you've just given me a list of things to do, and i got to be humble, and i got to be patient, and those things come so hard for me, and I, I don't know that I can do it. And I think God is saying, yeah, you're right. I know. I don't think you can do it by yourself either, so I've got a plan for you. I've got a way that can help you. And that's outlined in the next set of verses. And it's under this point. God's church is where he builds up his body. And we see this in verses 7 through 13. And it says this in 7 through 13. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It says here that God, in verse 7, God gives you all the grace you need to make this happen. This grace... It's a sense of power. It's, it's the ability that God has given you to make this come to fruition. And who gets this gift? In verse 7, who gets the gift? Each one of us, it says. We each get the gift. All of us. Do you remember in, 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 uh, when you were in school or on the playground and you had to pick teams? Remember that time and you had that horrible time we picked captains and then they picked teams to play the sport? I know this is going to take a minute to sink in for you, but in school I was a real nerd. I know you're like, Jerry, I don't see it. I'm like, I know, right? But it's true. I was, I was the shortest kid in my class. I wore glasses. I was uncoordinated. I collected insects in the backyard. I read comic books. I played with Star Wars figures. Not much has changed, actually, now that I, I think about it. Um, 
but I was never picked, or I was picked last. And Christ is saying, you know what, right here, I've picked you. You're on my first team, and I've given you everything you need to do the things I'm asking you to do. I've given you the greatest gift of all, salvation, through my burial, death, burial, and resurrection. I've given you resources like time and talent and maybe some extra money. On top of that, I've given you the Holy Spirit who's putting in you supernatural abilities, we call them spiritual gifts, that you can use to build up the body of Christ, things like hospitality or giving or encouragement or wisdom. In fact, if we turn back to Romans 12, we can see this fleshed out a little bit. Romans 12, verses 5 to 6a, it says this. So we, though many, are one body. There's that term again. I think one is God's favorite number, by the way. One body in Christ and individually members one of another. I like that word individually because it means we're not asked to give up our individuality. God has made you a certain unique way. And we're not supposed to give that up, but we're supposed to use it. It says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. There it is again, the grace. Let us use them. He said, you've got gifts. I want you to use them. I have a purpose for you, and I want you to use them. You have a unique combination of passion and personality and resources and gifts that God is asking you to use for the purpose of building up his body, of building us up. And then he zeroes in a little bit on five specific gifts here. He lists them, and he says, he talks about these five gifts. They are um, apostles, prophets, evangelists, Shepherds. Now, the word for shepherd is also the word for pastor. They're used interchangeably. So shepherd, pastor, and teachers. Now, these are the gifts that communicate, that we use in the church to communicate God's truths to us. These are the gifts that certain people in the church have to educate the rest of us on the things of God. But notice, what is the, what is the purpose of those gifts? Look at verse 12. The key is there on verse 12. To what? To equip the saints. That's you and me. Equip the saints for what? For the work of ministry. Who does the ministry? We do. Who does this apply to? Raise your hand if this applies to you. <laughs> I don't want to raise my hand. Stop manipulating me. It applies to all of us. All right? Sometimes we call the role of pastor minister. Like that's an official title, the minister. I don't like that used in that context because it implies that the pastor does the ministering and we're the ones that are ministered to. But that's not the model here. The pastor teaches us and we do the ministering. Can I be honest for a second? I hope you say yes. Um, I'm a pastor's kid. Well, that explains a lot. Um, my dad is 82. He's still pastoring. He's right back there. Hi, Dad. He's not retired. Pastor's kids, though, are often known to be, uh, to be rebels, to be rabble-rousers, to be bitter about the church. And I had lots of interesting experiences growing up in the church and talking with pastor's kids and uh, there's lots of reasons for some of those things, and we could get into that. But I think in the context of we're talking, what we're talking about today, the thing that struck me growing up is so often you had this feeling that the people in the church were constantly asking your dad to choose between them and you. And so I would ask you, do we care enough about Pastor and Kristen and his daughters? Do we care enough about Ben and Devin and their kiddos? Do we care enough about Ashley and her family? to come alongside them and share in the burden of ministry. Because when we do that, when we soak in the teaching, when we soak in the worship, and then we turn it back around and funnel it back out into works of service and ministry for each other, it says right here that we are built up. We get stronger. We become more mature and united in the faith. A unified church is built on acts of service resulting in growth and maturity. You ever wonder... 
why maybe you don't feel like you're growing. You're like, I've been doing some things, but it doesn't feel like I'm growing. Possibly one reason could be, maybe, that you've been doing a lot of taking and maybe not as much sharing. So maybe you need to take stock of the gifts that you have and the resources that you've been given and determine how you can put this into practice. Now, Paul takes this concept of ministry that we've been talking about, and he expands on it, all right? He grows on this, um, for, he uses it as a catalyst in our last section here. And what we're talking about in this last section is the fact that God's church is where he grows his body. This is where we grow, right here, this body, all right? And we can see this in verses 14 to 16. It says this, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the ways and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Notice in verse 14 it says, so that. Basically saying the things that we've learned about so far, walking in a manner worthy of, of the calling, of, of being united, of loving each other, that thing results in the list in verse 14. And I love that list because I have this feeling that Paul's like, man, I got all these cool analogies and I don't know which one to use. So I'm just going to throw them all out there in one verse. And he's got three analogies in there. And the first one is that we won't be a baby anymore. We won't be children. This is a common theme in, in Scripture, this, this notion of, of us growing and starting off as babies and then growing. In fact, if you turn to Hebrews 5, uh, verses 13 to 14, it says this. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. We won't be a baby anymore. I have a five-month-old grandson. He's the cutest thing in the world. He was over last night. It would be really odd when he came over if I said to him, dude, why are you drooling? Grow up. That is so gross. No, I don't say that. In fact, it's cute. I'm like, oh, you're such a cute little drooler. Let me wipe that drool off your face. It's a cute, right? But if he's 13 and doing that, it's probably not going to be as cute. <laughs> I'm just guessing. God is saying, when you're a baby Christian, it's okay to act like a baby Christian. You're new. But as you grow, it's time to mature. And if we do the things that we've talked about so far, you will. You will be grown up. And you won't be tossed around like a boat without a rudder. And it says you won't be tricked either. We won't be tricked by charlatans. If someone comes up to you and says, hey, I got a brand new teaching, brand new teaching in Scripture. I just found this. It's brand new. You can be like, wait a minute. You're tricking me. You're deceiving me. I know better because I have been growing. I have been maturing because of the things that we talked about here so far. Paul is encouraging us, this progression of living worthy, of serving, of building each other up, it causes us to grow. And it's God's desire that we grow together. It says one of the goals of building each other up is unity in the faith. Now, can you grow by yourself? I mean, you can to a point. I had someone try to convince me once that they could get as close to God in their hunting blind as they could in church. Now, I know you can get close to God in the hunting blind. All you hunters, I already had someone after the first service, hey, I can get close to God. I know you can. But I don't think you can get to the fullness of what God hopes for you by yourself. The thrust of this entire passage strongly suggests that you cannot experience the fullness of what God has for you outside of his church. In fact, the theologian F.F. Bruce says this, the higher reaches of the Christian life, not all the reaches, 
But the higher reaches of the Christian life cannot be attained in isolation from one's fellow believers. I mean, look at verse 15 here, right? It says, we won't be children, we won't be tossed about, we won't be tricked. Rather, so instead of those things, it says, here's another characteristic that will be true of you. You will speak the truth in love. Where do I do that if not with everyone else? Do I do that by myself? Do I do it in a mirror? I'm like, dude, you are such a blessing to God, and you are so awesome. You're not bad looking either. I, what, that's not truth. I will deceive myself. The Bible says that my heart is deceitful, and I can't trust it. I need you guys to speak truth into my life, hopefully lovingly. And you need me speaking truth in your life. And that happens corporately. That happens together. And that's why this section ends with this beautiful picture of all the parts of the body working together, each doing what God has given them to do, resulting in a healthy body that builds each other up in love. Now, if you're a part of this church, if you call this church home, you have a part to play, and it's, it's an exciting one. And maybe you haven't been participating yet for whatever reason. You know what? We miss you. We need you. Because according to what we just read here, we need you to become a fully functioning, fully performing church. It takes all of us. And I would suggest also that without the body, if you're just by yourself, you're like a, you're like a big toe that's just flopping around on the sidewalk, just flopping there, trying to get from one sidewalk square to the next. And you might have a little progress, just a big toe flopping around. But until that toe is connected to a foot, and until that foot is connected to a leg, until that connect, leg is connected to a body that has Christ as the head, you are not going to get as far as you could go without. Now, maybe you're not even there yet. Maybe you've never made a commitment to Christ. And you're thinking, you know what? I, I've never even been part of, a, of anything that really mattered in the first place. You know what God is saying to you? God is saying, you matter. You matter so much, and I loved you so much that I came to earth. In fact, it talks about that in that, that little parentheses section in 9, 10, 11. I came to earth. I died. I took the burden of your sins on my life. I was buried, and then I rose again, conquering death, giving you the chance for life. But he's not going to force you to be on your team. So maybe this is the day that you decide to follow Christ and throw your lot in with the rest of us squirrely people in this room. Guys, the universal church of which we are a local chapter is where God unifies, he builds, and he grows his people. And you might be saying, you know, Jerry, I hear you, but what we've talked about today, I really can't reconcile with my experiences. I've seen some ugliness in the church. I've been part of a church split, or three, and I, I'm having a hard time connecting this. And I get it. I really do. And I think God does too. I think he knows that we are fallen creatures just doing our best, but he doesn't want us to give up. He wants us to keep striving. That's why passages, passages like this are in Scripture to remind us that this is something that God values and we should value it too. We're just a bunch of normal people, far from perfect, who have experienced God's grace in our life, and now we should be resolving to show that grace to anyone that God brings into our little circle. You know what that looked like for me coming here to Woodside? Um, my family and I had uh, been part of a church for a long time. Uh, over 20 years, we had raised our family in this church, and it was very much a part. We were very much involved, very much a part of our life. It was kind of who we were, um, uh, very strong and very involved. And then a few years ago, some really bad things happened, really ugly things. And uh, it, it was, I don't need to go into details, but it was really bad. And uh, we left that church feeling very 
hurt, feeling very betrayed, uh, feeling very deeply wounded. And uh, that was COVID year, so we could uh, kind of sit around for a while and do church on the couch and kind of try to heal and try to, try to make sense of everything that happened. And it, it certainly wasn't easy. But after about a year, we kind of felt this need to get back involved in a church. And so we live in Hadley Township, so we looked around and we're like, oh, okay, well, we've heard some good things about Woodside, so let's try Woodside. And I'm like, okay, we're going to go to Woodside, going to sit in the back row, not going to talk to anyone. I don't want to tell anyone what we've been through. I don't want to talk about the past. I don't even want to talk to anyone. I'm just going to sit in the back row. All right. So we sat right there in the back row. It was a great service. And after the service, I saw this guy make a beeline right for me. And I'm like, no, no, I don't want to talk to you. Don't come here. I'm like, how do I get out of here? I'm stuck in the middle. Can I just jump over the chair and run out the back? Would that be odd? Because I considered it. And so he got there with his wife. And he started talking to me and my wife. And I introduced himself. And we made some small talk. And then he asked the question I was dreading. What brings you to Woodside? And... Uh, I thought, well, I'm just going to make something up. I'm just going to come up with something benign that will kind of make him leave me alone. And I opened my mouth to talk, and nothing came out. And the only thing that came out was this torrent of tears. I mean, I just started sobbing. I couldn't help it. I was so embarrassed. And I, I was just sobbing. I'm thinking, this poor guy, he just wants to say hi, and he finds this basket case in the back row. I'm not sure if it's what he expected. And, uh, but he wasn't phased. He said, I need to pray for you. And he put his hands on my shoulder, and he prayed this prayer that was so overwhelming. It was amazing. And I felt God was saying, I'm still here. I'm still working. I'm still healing. I still have faithful people in this church who are trying to my power to be this communion of saints. Don't give up, Jerry. I am in here, and I am in the business of healing and putting us together. The Christian author Philip Yancey said this, I rejected church for a time, because I found so little grace there, I returned because I found grace nowhere else. So if we were to erect a banner over our church like we talked about at the beginning, where we walk under that describes this church, if it was up to me, it would say three words. Grace found here. That's what I, that's what I would love to see us become. And I've already seen parts of it, as I already said. So let's be a church of grace, you guys, unified, building each other up, serving, and growing into the fullness of Jesus Christ. All right. All right, let's stand as we pray and finish up with some worship. Let's, let's go ahead and stand. Oh, dear Father, we thank you so much for your blessings. Today, we especially thank you for your church, your beautiful bride that you gave yourself for. Forgive us for our, selfish, for our selfishness, for our temper tantrums, for not valuing what you value. I pray, God, that this local body of believers would rise up and show what it means to love, to grow, to be unified. And may we experience the bond of peace that ties us all together as one and use the grace that you have given each of us to further your kingdom here in Lapeer. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.